Press Gallery. Uh, we are, of course, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. It is Friday, June 29th from the Newsroom Studio. My name is Keith Dryan. I'm uh, the health reporter, but uh, guest host this week for the Press Gallery, while uh, Emma Graney is uh, charming everyone around the country on a, on a little road trip. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show today. We're going to talk about uh, a new child intervention report from the province, an anti-racism report. And uh, we're going to talk about how the uh, government did with its uh, financial year end. I have uh, three distinguished guests with me today. Uh, oh. You do? <laughs> Emma, do. Emma never well, calls us I know. distinguished. <laughs> I know. You don't even know your own worth. Um, our uh, legislature columnist, Graham Thompson. Good morning. City columnist, Paula Simons. Hello, Keith. And education reporter, Janet French. Good morning. All right. Well, thanks for being here. We are calling this the Stronger, Safer Tomorrow edition. Uh, which is, uh, of course, uh, named after the child intervention report that came out. Uh, Paula, and you and I covered this uh, this week. It's quite a yes, dense sir. report. Uh, 39 plans, action items for the government to fix the child intervention system. There's some, some good ideas in there, some, some things to uh, improve kinship care, which uh, places children with extended family rather than a foster home, because that is the government's major direction. Uh, for for placing children. Uh, There's a lot of talk, tough talk, about getting Ottawa to step up to its funding responsibilities for for funding uh, children on reserve. Uh, Some talk about uh, equalizing payments uh, for people that are are not equal now. Um, Government seems very proud of this. Uh, Danielle Larive, the Minister of Children's Services, is really, really proud of this. Uh, You you didn't see it quite the same way. No, and I I would venture to say that if they were authentically proud of this, they would have shared it properly instead of the very peculiar way in which they rolled it out. Um, uh, Having a press conference in Lethbridge where no one from the Edmonton or Calgary media could phone in to ask questions is, and, you know, they actually had this weird rule that I wasn't allowed to write about it. it at the same time you were, I had was I was like personally embargoed from writing about it. It was very odd. Yes, they so, wouldn't even let you attend a technical briefing. That's right. They that had a technical briefing just for Keith, uh, with, with me listening in the newsroom, and you know, uh, it, it was really odd. So you know, I mean, I think actually, if they were proud of this, they would have stood behind it. Uh, I, the real problem with this report isn't what's in it; it's what's not in it. This is a grab bag collection of. You know, reasonably solid suggestions, a lot of them. Uh, you know, there's a suggestion there that there should be better bursaries for kids who are sort of aging out of the system who want to go to post-secondary. There are suggestions about ways to uh, improve suicide prevention. So, there, you know, there it's a patchwork of of some ideas. Some, some are, you know, quirkier than others. So there's a suggestion that they should have a grandmother's council of Indigenous grandmothers, uh, not Indigenous grandfathers and not non-Indigenous grandmothers, but Indigenous grandmothers who would meet three times a year and provide special grandmotherly advice to the ministry. So, I mean, the problem I have is that it, it is literally a collection of window dressing. We have a system that is fundamentally broken. And these are decorative suggestions like the icing on the cake, like the baubles on a Christmas tree, uh, that don't cut to the heart of what's really wrong with the child welfare system, which in a nutshell is that under the Klein government, the system was radically decentralized. Uh, Care of kids was given not to government agencies, but to a whole bunch of not-for-profit initiatives and First Nations who all run their own 
parallel systems that don't communicate with one another. There's no kind of authentic oversight or accountability. The whole system is higgledy-piggledy. And adding more bells and whistles, more committees, more panels of discussion, more little frills and, and grace notes doesn't cut to the heart of a system that is broken because uh, workers are underpaid, workers are overworked, uh, there's no accountability when things go off the rails. And this is a lot of sound and fury. That's not even sound and fury. It's a lot of it's a lot of trees and not a lot of forest. Right. Yeah, I was interested to see that there isn't much in there actually even on, on caseworkers uh, other than one action no. to improve workplace morale, but nothing about... Um, nothing about the caseloads that they have, nothing about, um, you know, making sure that they have the proper supports and and so on. I mean, there's so many holes. I mean, group homes. People don't talk about group homes enough. We talk about kinship care and foster care for younger kids. But many, many, many older youth in the system are in group homes. The phrase group home never appears once in the report, even though it's a fundamental backbone of the way we run our system. And as for the issue of equalization of payments, this this is what I found most disingenuous about the report. Uh, it says in bold print that the province is committing to Jordan's principle, which is a, a phrase that means that when a kid on reserve needs services, the kid will get the services and they'll worry about who pays for them afterwards. I mean, in a nutshell, uh, the report also says that kids on reserve should families on reserve should be funded to the same level as those off reserve. And, and that isn't the case now because the federal government looks after uh, child welfare on reserve and funds traditionally at a lower level than the province does. But when I pushed Minister Daniel Larravee and I pushed her hard on this yesterday, mm. I said the report never assigns any funds to this. It doesn't provide any explanation of how the province would step up. All the report talks about in detail is pressuring Ottawa, that, you know, that the province will work with First Nations to put more pressure on Ottawa. That's not the same thing as saying you're going to fund. And finally, she said to me, well, you know, we're going to do all, all the pressuring. We're going to press hard on Ottawa. And if they don't, and if they still refuse to live up to the ruling of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, which told them that they can't underfund on reserve anymore, she said then the province would step up. But there's no funding attached to that. And she was frank and she said, you know, that's not going to happen this fiscal year. So, you know, you can say this report commits the province to equalized funding. You can say that. It's not really what the report says. Yeah, it wasn't explicit in there. It's interesting. I'm going to jump in here for a second. Yeah, please. This is done by an NDP government. You you think there's a certain irony here. This is the guys in opposition were the ones clamoring for changes. Uh, to improve things, you know, the, the social welfare system, the social justice system, and they put out this report after being harangued for the last couple of years. So that's by me a, personally. Well, yeah, exactly. There's, there's a sense that this is what this is the best an NDP government could do on this. Yeah, you know, the, I mean, part of this is is the genesis, right? I mean, we'll recall that you know, a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago now, I had a series of really quite disturbing stories about a young girl named Serenity who had died after being placed in kinship care. And there was a great, I mean, the Wild Rose Party, as they were then, made great hay with this in in uh, the legislature. And finally, the NDP government was driven to accept the idea of an all-party committee that would look at this. And the trouble is, you know, when you have a, a committee of of politicians instead of people who are public policy experts. You know, I mean, the committee came up with a whole grab bag of recommendations, and so this report responds to that grab bag of recommendations. But what nobody ever did 
was go back and look at, say, what the Auditor General said about this. I mean, the Auditor General wrote an absolutely damning report about the child welfare system from an Auditor General's lens, in which he looked at things, you know, some metrics, like once a kid goes into care, they're supposed to be visited by their caseworker. How many kids are actually getting visited on the schedule at which they're supposed to be visited? And and he looked at some numbers which were pretty hellacious for, for, for looking at actually how the system runs. So the problem is you can't solve this problem with ideology and you can't solve it with good intentions. We have a dysfunctional system and that has nothing to do with the kind of frills that this report addresses. If you're not willing to say the system itself doesn't work. It's not a matter of ideology. It's a matter of competence. It is a system set up so that it cannot work. Right. If, if you're not going to, if you're not going to take strip this down to first principles, you will not get a better outcome. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Wild Rose Party because of the 39 recommendations, 16 of them are supposed to be implemented by the end of this fiscal year. Those are the sort of the easier ones, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. The other ones are, are more complicated, potentially more costly, and they may fall in the lap of Jason Kenney. Uh, the, not, not, th- not that we're presupposing the outcome of any <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, right, but uh, you, you do wonder, um, I mean, this is an NDP government report supposedly put together with recommendations from all party members from the panel that they had earlier. Um, but, you know, is it an open question whether Jason Kenney actually decides to, to take th- this report and run with it or whether he'll, he'll go off on his own on some other tangent? You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, our colleague Paige Parsons was working on the follow story to this yesterday. She found it very difficult to just get the, the, uh, the United Conservative Party to even respond. She did eventually get Jason Nixon on the line, uh, he was on on the committee himself, and he had some questions that he raised about, you know, specifically, uh, was this report going to make anybody safer? I mean, I'm concerned, given that Serenity died after being placed in kinship care, given that she's certainly not the only Indigenous child who's died uh, in kinship care. I am a bit concerned that the report doubles down on kinship care as the preferred model without putting the safeguards in place that I think are necessary. Question. Sure. Um, okay, so when I I had a quick look through the just the top of the recommendations, the the short form recommendations last night, and I thought about it a lot through the lens of the sixty scoop. And it's interesting what you say about how the system has become fragmented and con- you know there's some local control issues, but it's not well coordinated. How do you fix that kind of system without being colonialist and, and potentially um, stepping on the autonomy of a First Nation? Quite a few First Nations in Alberta have delegated authority to run their own child welfare systems. A lot of them have been set up to fail, though. If they don't have the funding, which is supposed to come from Ottawa, and if they don't have the training and support and the capacity, things go terribly, terribly wrong. I mean, it's more than a decade ago that I worked with Allison Jeffs and Rick McConnell uh, on on a series of stories about, you know, when the Samson First Nation first took over its own child welfare agency, they had, you know, half a dozen kids die, boom, 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 boom because they were actually putting them in white foster in unlicensed white foster homes off reserve because they didn't have the capacity on reserve and that story has always haunted me there is a lot of merit you know I shouldn't put it that way that's damning it with faint praise it is the ideal situation that first nations should run their own child welfare systems if not band by band then maybe you know as a collection of bands running their own child welfare agency so that they have that, that strength of numbers But if you don't provide funding, if you don't provide training, and if you don't provide oversight, 
then how can the system possibly work? It's not because I think First Nations don't have the end of the day capacity to run their own child welfare systems, and, and, and that is the preferable model. I think this is probably ultimately going to be judged uh, on on the Serenity case, as you mentioned. Uh, I think people are going to look at it through the lens of if this had been in place uh, four years ago, would this have saved Serenity's life? Will it prevent future Serenities from happening? I I, I, I take it you you think that's probably unlikely. Uh, I guess we'll see as it as it gets implemented. You know, I mean, Janet raises a really really important point. I mean, white people taking away Indigenous kids hasn't worked as a model for the last 150 years. It has not worked at all. It has been a colossal disaster. But the correct uh, recourse to that is not to give Indigenous kids second-class care. All right, well, thanks for that, Paula. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's uh, talk about another uh, major announcement that happened this week. Uh, Janet, you covered this. This is a, a kind of a long-awaited report. I think, I think you've been waiting quite some time for it yeah. on, on anti-racism. Yes. So what uh, now the it depends who you ask what exactly prompted this report. But about a year ago, Premier Rachel Notley asked Education Minister David Egan to take on a bit of a summer school project, which was to travel around the province and talk to various cultural groups, ethnic groups about racism. And it was in the wake of the uh, the shooting at a Quebec mosque where uh, a killer killed six people and injured several others. And also there had been a couple of racial, racially charged incidents that had happened in Alberta. And also there had been a bit of an uptake, uh, according to Statistics Canada, in the number of hate crimes related to race or religion reported to police in Alberta. So he sort of delved in and it seemed like every day there were two or three pictures of him on Twitter, you know, hanging out with various groups around Alberta and various towns talking about some of their challenges. And and they came back, obviously, with a lot of feedback, um, and some of it, you know, may be familiar to most people, and some of it perhaps may not be something you'd heard of before. Uh, so, for example, the idea of foreign credentials came came up a lot. That people say, you know, it's it's we don't we don't qualify for jobs in when we come to Canada, and uh, so that obviously affects our ability to to have a good economic livelihood. Um, and so he released two immediate actions and several, like seven, seven or eight longer term ones that need to be implemented with more consultation from the public. So the immediate two are that the government is going to have its first ever uh, anti-racism advisory council, which is 25 members of various ethnic groups who will inform or give feedback to government kind of informing policy or trying to identify you know systemic racist barriers in public services I think to uh, to help them maybe eliminate some of those barriers and the other one is uh, to start a new grants program which I think is two million dollars and there'll be two streams of this one for indigenous run organizations and one for other Uh, and it's more the idea that there's you know a lot of services you can access in maybe Edmonton and Calgary if you're having problems with racial profiling or you're you're a newcomer, um, but maybe not so much in smaller towns. And so this is a way to sort of reach out into some of those smaller areas where newcomers maybe don't see quite so many people who look like themselves. Um, And also, you know, some of these people who who are in these small groups, you know, they're already very well connected with the community. Uh, And the longer term recommendations include things like 
starting a fund, and I, I'm interested in more details about this because this is something I'd heard a lot about when I worked in Saskatchewan. There's a lot of uh, people who move to Saskatchewan thinking they can work as doctors and end up having a lot of trouble. Um, recognizing foreign qualifications and maybe not just looking specifically at credentials, uh, but also their experience and skills. So I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do that for professions. Um, and then they also want to, although Edmonton police have a hate crimes unit, they want to make a provincial hate crimes unit. And I did ask for some more specifics about that. And again, not a lot of details forthcoming at this point about how that would work or like whether they're going to take a more punitive or, you know, prosecute hate crimes more rigorously. Not quite sure yet. Um, and some of the other things are... Uh, helping educate Albertans about their human rights, which they hope that the new Human Rights Commissioner can do. And also, uh, this is kind of already underway, but they're just underscoring it as they, the new, uh, Alberta's rewriting its K-12 curriculum right now. Yeah, I was starting to wonder, I mean, this is the education minister's report. It's so I know, far, why? Yeah. Why are you doing this, Dave? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, obviously there's overlap with, and they, they are hanging a lot of their hope on that component, that if you get you know, there are some people who would argue that, that racist attitudes are learned, not in, not innate or ingrained, uh, not innate. But uh, I think that they're hoping that if they can get to get to kids early to help them, you know, teach them tolerance and understanding and kind of stave off, stave it off, then that'll be their their success. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the idea of a provincial hate crime unit, that makes sense to coordinate with the RCMP because, uh, you know, right now, uh, Edmonton's is very good, but I don't know what it's like if you're in. Um, I've Lapish. heard Calgary does not have one. Yeah, so I mean that that's a solid recommendation. Uh, doing something about credentialing is a solid recommendation too. I mean, you don't want to lower standards, but I think some of the professional organizations, uh, the standards. I mean, even to challenge the exams is expensive. To get something like uh, a residency is next to impossible. So if you're a doctor, even if you're a highly qualified physician, it can be really, really tough to, to get the chance to put in the hours to requalify here. Uh, and we, you know, that's not just a question of being nice. Uh, we, we need trained professionals and having, being able to take professionals who somebody, you know, another different country has, has trained uh, and, you know, I mean, go into an Alberta hospital and, you know, we're we're certainly benefiting from a brain drain from the Philippines when it comes to to nursing, and we need to be able to, you know, get more people act working up to their full potential faster. How that solves racism, I'm not entirely certain. Um, I I'm gonna take a stab in the dark and interpret uh, their intent here, which is that. Uh, if you're not living up to your full economic potential, then you're maybe disenchanted and you're more likely to live in poverty. And then if you're more likely to live in poverty, then you're more likely to be involved in crime and then it's more likely to reinforce stereotypes about, I don't know, it seems like it seems like they can't win, right? It's either, um, you know, it's lazy because they're not they're not living up to their full potential or it's assumed that they're stealing our jobs, right? It does feel like this is a bit overdue as well, considering... Um you know, how the provinces, the demographics in the province have been changing for years now. Uh, and that is a major point that they make, that one in three, nearly one in three Albertans was born outside Canada, I think. And something like a quarter of Albertans, like their first language, is not English or French. Not so, mu not so much reflected in our, our current uh, uh, legislature, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it, no. It, it, it's... Go into any elementary school... You know, when we see the school groups come through here, we can see 
that this is changing and so quickly and that the kids themselves, you know, it, it's like ducklings in the water. I mean, to them, this is perfectly normative. So I have great hopes for the future. When I look at my inbox today, I wrote a, a happy column this week about the opening of the Aga Khan Garden at the U of A Botanic Gardens. It's beautiful. Everybody should go and see it. Uh, and the amount of hate mail I have about the fact that this is a, an Islamic-themed garden uh, funded entirely by a generous donation from the Aga Khan, who is the leader of the Ismaili Muslim community around the world. I mean, I just despair, right? Go, it's a pretty garden. It's full of roses and <laughs> fountains. Uh, it's not some, it's it's not trying to, you know, brainwash you into Sharia law. This is not the Aga Khan's attempt to take over Canada. Just go and look at the pretty flowers and be grateful that you live in a country where you can enjoy the cultures of so many different people right here to enrich your life and your soul and all of you soulless people who've been filling my inbox with your hate. I'm guessing you're not actually listeners to this podcast, but <laughs> but if you were, I, you know, stop why, it. Why is your news so negative? Why don't you write about something nice or happy once in a while? Yeah, yeah, we hear that all the time. <laughs> well, let, let's switch um, to uh, a report that came out yesterday, the, the government's... Uh, financial results for the 2017-2018 year. Uh, normally, uh, an $8 billion deficit uh, would be uh, pretty lousy. That would be uh, that would be cause for concern, and I suppose it is, but uh, it's a lot better than it could have been, uh, Graham. Yeah. Uh, you and I covered this well, one. Exactly. This is, you know, <laughs> right. There was a $10.5 billion budget deficit forecast last year. It's only $8 billion. I know. And wow. you had out came... Joe Cece yesterday, finance minister, uh -huh. saying... The tyranny of low expectations. Well, exactly. He's saying, oh, I've got some good news today. And so the thing is, yes, it's good news that it's, it's $2.5 billion lower than expected, but it's actually still bad news. It's $8 billion. So the thing is, um, yes, there's some good news in there. The um, growth rate last year was 4.7%. percent 4.9. Sorry, 4.9%. Sorry, that's, that's very good. So almost 5% last year growth rate. It is great. Except we're still below what we were when the recession hit. So we, we went into a hole in 2015, 2016. We're still not, not out of that hole yet. The GDP is still recovering. They expect next year we'll be back to where we were before the recession. And, of course, going back to Paula's prediction about a UCP victory next year. I did. <laughs> um, it seems that then, then Jason Kenney is going to inherit, you know, a a economy is actually recovered by next year. And of course, this is Alberta politics. I'm, I'm pulling your leg here, uh, Paula, because <laughs> it's that sense of Alberta politics where there's, you know, there's luck plays a lot uh, of yeah, into Alberta th politics. Thinking about Don Getty is Don your... I know. Yeah, Don Getty comes in, the price of oil goes down, and he gets years and years of really bad luck. He leaves, in comes uh, Ralph Klein, and then the price of oil goes up. Oh, actually, it was, it was um, natural gas back then. Makes tons of money, and everyone thinks he's a hero. But the the problem is all timing. Having said that, going back to these numbers, yes, um, the jobless numbers uh, we're seeing like uh, ninety thousand more 000. jobs in yep. the last year. That's great, but we're still seeing relatively high unemployment in Calgary, seven point seven percent. So even though it's good news, it's relatively good news. There's still a lot of bad news out there. But this is something, of course, the the NDP is is continually pointing out that things are getting better in Alberta. It's but getting better. Yes. The are they getting better enough is the question. That's the thing. And yesterday... And, um, and fast enough. And yesterday, um, CC was talking about, yeah, he knows that you know, not, not all kitchen tables have people who are around it who are happy, who have not... Some have not 
being hired back or, or hired back at a job, they actually made the money they did before. And of course, this is something the UCP is all over them uh, for spending too much. There's a big deficit, and uh, this is going to be the next election campaign about uh, you're going to have the government saying, look, we're still investing, we're still borrowing, but it's, it's to keep things going in the economy, to keep building things, don't lay people off by the truckload kind of thing. And a UCP saying, no, no, the government's overspending and they got the carbon tax and you're going to have this fight. And we're seeing the fight, of course, go out day by day. But yesterday, even though things are getting better and they are getting better, the recovery has come to Alberta. It hasn't come completely to Alberta, I imagine a year from now we'll see a recovery, just in time for the election, which is good and bad news for the NDP. Yeah, I think the, I think the unemployment rate in Calgary is still well over 7%. It's 7.7%. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's so, still high. Yeah, so it's different here in Edmonton than it is there and in other parts of the province. The the opposition parties, they, they basically said to the government, uh, you got lucky. Uh, you got a, a jump in oil prices. That's the only reason the deficit is lower than it, it should have been. Um, your spending is still way out of control, as you mentioned. Um, the, the, and CC pointed out, in fact, that the operating budget actually came in just slightly under budget, uh, which and we haven't seen necessarily for a while. Um, I had a but question about that. Where, where was the, what were they spending on? Like, where, where was their spending over? Well, their spending was over on education for higher enrollment, uh, some of the smaller departments. Uh, healthcare, uh, strangely enough, came in under budget. About I saw 200, that. Uh, <laughs> That's really unusual. Under, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, they're touting the cost savings they've had there with physicians and, and, and other groups. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still, um, it's, it's still a lot of money. They, they told me, in fact, they are spending, uh, they spent $260 million last year just to service the debt for the operating part of the, of the budget. I mean, and that's going to continue to go up. I think the overall debt is somewhere around $43 billion now, uh, and that's going up as well. That's right. So uh, these will, I think, probably be pretty key election uh, issues. Uh, Graham, I also wanted to ask you just briefly, I think you covered some new farm safety rules that, that, that came <laughs> out. <laughs> well, it was funny. Gordon Kent also covered that yeah. story and mentioned that they can, uh, farmers and farm workers can now go pee in the fields. They, well, they, they aren't required they, to have a bathroom. As if they weren't doing that before. <laughs> the point here is this is Bill 6. You go back to 2015, the oh, end of 2015. Such a, f- a flashpoint. The thing is, you know, the government brought in what they thought would be a no-brainer um, rules that would cover finally paid farm workers in Alberta because they're the only workers in the province not covered by WCB and Occupational Health and Safety. They're the only farm workers in the entire country not covered by these kind of rules. The government thought, and of course the Premier being a labor lawyer, thought, we'll cover these workers finally. Well, they brought in the law, but they rolled it out really badly, did not consult with farmers and ranchers properly because when they first brought out the law, the, the wording the, the, the draft legislation basically made it sound like they're going to cover family farms as well. The mom and dad, the kids going to milk the cow would have to go out you know, like in safety harnesses and, and, trip, you know, and fill up forms to go collect some eggs. It made it sound like the government was actually, in a sense, making treating a family farm like an industrial complex. And, of course, the government said, no, we didn't mean it that way. And there were massive protests, of course, in the legislature. And the government then, it still brought in Bill 6 into law in 2016 to cover the paid farm workers for things like WCB and OHS. But then it began this consultation process two and a half years later, basically, where they talked to farmers, consulted with farms, uh, farmers and um, ranchers to bring out 
safety laws that will come into effect in December to cover things like if you're on a farm, you're driving a tractor, do you have to wear a seatbelt? Things like that. And the answer is no. And, um, and the things like uh, the owner of the farm, this, again, this is paid farm worker, not um, the family farm uh, members, if you have to use a washroom, like must the owner p- provide a, a washroom facility? Well, no, he or she doesn't. It's a fascinating, it, it's a real step down, but you can see the, res- the result is that the reaction has been totally muted. It's interesting. Um, the UCP is, you're right, there's, there's been no, no massive protests. In the no. States. Now, I think what's happened, people have I think, realized the government has made a mistake. It stepped back and said, yes, we'll, we'll consult, consult, consult. But the UCP is still saying it will scrap Bill 6. It's still saying that. Um, and you think, holy cow, it's taken two and a half years of consultations, and the law seems pretty straightforward. It's in line with other jurisdictions other provinces to, to give paid farm, 14,000 paid farm workers just basic protection. But people, you know, the emailing me, they're still upset about it, saying they hope the, the UCP wins the election and, and scraps everything. Even though the UCP is saying it's going to scrap Bill 6, I wonder if that's actually going to happen because it has been a lot of time and they will be bringing in all these, these changes in effect this year. And they're pretty straightforward common sense. They're not shutting down the family farm. So I think we'll see what actually happens. This may be a case where the UCP is saying to its base, we'll, sh- we'll scrap Bill 6, becomes government. If, in fact, as Paula predicts, the UCP <laughs> wins the election. Stop we'll see never going to let this go. They, um, How many seats, Paula? If, if, in fact, they actually do scrap the law. But it, it plays. Keith who said it, not me. It, it, it plays to their base, of course. And uh, but the thing is, uh, it, it makes common sense to cover workers uh, like any other paid farm worker in Canada, why are the, the workers in Alberta, are they somehow uh, second-class citizens when it comes to being workers? Well, let's wrap up uh, with our usual uh, our usual wrapping up, which is uh, good stuff from the gallery. It's something that we've watched or read or listened to that we've enjoyed that we'd like to recommend for you. Uh, Janet, what have you got for us today? I'm recommending a column by Kristen Raworth in Maclean's magazine. She has accused... Kent Eyre of uh, making an inappropriate comment uh, in the legislature when he was a provincial politician, uh, saying when he when they were alone together in an elevator that he called her yummy. Um, so it's kind of newsy what she tells us in this column is that uh, the liberals, the federal liberals, did investigate the incident um, and they that they backed her account one hundred percent. Uh, and that a public and personal apology was forthcoming. And I think two interesting things. Uh, number one, that um, she was shocked by this outcome, it sounds like. And, and um, you know, women's, women's rights advocates that she talked to about it were also shocked that, hey, I believe you. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and she also talks in this column about, about how she was sexually assaulted by a good friend and how... Um, being forthcoming about it and you know acting on it actually cost her a whole group of friends which is kind of horrifying um that they they didn't want to you know break up their group of friends and she she lost all these supports over it and how she ended up um embracing the idea of forgiveness as not because you know it was a virtuous thing to do but because that's was her way of getting past all of this and um I think maybe I'm just a more bitter person than her, but I, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> it's kind of compelling. Okay. 
It sounds like an interesting read. We'll post the link uh, to that on the journal webpage. Uh, Graham, what about you? Oh, uh, speaking of that sort of Me Too uh, movement, a column this week by Andrew Coyne. There's been a few almost identical columns come out. Um, people are thinking the same thing about this. It's to do with um, uh, Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau, and his alleged infraction against a young woman in 2000. Um, this is very murky story. Yeah, and it's, it's popped up now because you know, like it's Frank Magazine. People who don't like Justin Trudeau are pushing this forward. But there was an editorial written at the time in 2000 by a young woman who said she was basically well, it's really murky as to what she actually actually happened. But I guess basically Trudeau was a young man at a festival in BC, and uh, I guess he made advances on her allegedly. Yes, and that she wrote about it at the time. Um, and it's now popped up. And the thing is, Trudeau now is saying he doesn't recall what actually happened, didn't recall anything bad happening at that festival. But he's kind of in, in a position where he can't really win on this one. Uh, whatever he does, he is going to look bad because he's set a zero, zero tolerance policy on any infractions against women harassing them, whatever. So this is an issue that I imagine will continue uh, for some time because Trudeau doesn't really want to address it, but of course his critics and others want him to address it. Uh, my good stuff this week is uh, called the uh, Jackie Robinson of Rodeo. It's in uh, a publication called Texas Monthly because that's where I get all my, uh, all, all, all my <laughs> good stuff. It's a really good magazine. It, it, is, a good, <laughs> a good, it is a good magazine. Uh, so this is a story uh, about uh, Mertis Deitman, um, who was uh, kind of broke the color barrier in rodeo, in bull, uh, bull riding. And uh, it's, uh, it actually starts off with a... Uh, a scene from 1967 from Edmonton, where he won the event in Edmonton and became the number one uh, ranked bull rider in the world, first time uh, a black man had done so. So just like Jackie Robinson, he came to Canada to break the color barrier. He certainly did. That, yeah, that's exactly, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, anyway, very compelling read uh, from 1967, a, a black man uh, breaking the color barrier in rodeo, in some ways even more impressive, uh, potentially, than uh, than baseball, considering uh, the culture of that at the time. Uh, Paula, uh, what, have, what have you got? This was Peter Brown's last week with CBC Edmonton. People may remember him from the years that he hosted Radioactive, and then he was the uh, producer of The Irrelevant Show. Uh, he leaves the CBC with a lovely parting gift, a uh, documentary for ideas about political satire in the age of Trump and whether it's possible to have satire as an art form at a point when you can't really exaggerate for effect uh, because somebody is is sort of beyond satire. Uh, little known fact about Peter, he has a master's degree from Cambridge where he studied uh, 18th century uh, satirical uh, poetry. And so he brings all of that intellect to bear and his his uh, sense of humor to produce a very funny documentary. Ideas is not usually known for being a rip-snorting laugh fest, uh, but it's, it's a very entertaining uh, a listen uh, and uh, very timely and topical. All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, that does it for another episode of the Press Gallery. Uh, please uh, tune in to the, uh, uh, all of our um, tune-in radio, uh, iTunes, anywhere where you can get a subscription to the Press Gallery and the Journal's uh, homepage, of course, where you can check out all the past episodes. Thanks very much. We'll see you again next week in the Press Gallery.